Good morning, First Baptist. And if this is your first time here, welcome. We're very glad that you could be here with us today and join us this morning. A man was speaking to his next-door neighbor about a conference that he'd just attended the night before. And he was super excited about it. He'd heard all the insightful things that the conference speaker had to say. And he turned to his neighbor and said, this conference speaker said something amazing. He said that all of the difficulties and all of the problems in the world could be boiled down to two words. Ignorance and apathy. And he turned to his neighbor and he said, what do you think about that? And he said, I really don't know and I really don't care. <laughs> I'm sure at some point in your life you've heard the phrases that uh, ignorance is bliss and uh, what you don't know can hurt you. But I've come to the realization that I don't think that's true. I remember walking into a, a class when I was in college and when I sat down, the, the professor said, okay, put all of your books and notebooks in your bag. And he started passing out a paper. And I looked at the guy beside me and I said, what's going on? He said, well, we've got a test today. I, I had no idea. And guess what happened? I failed it. And you know, that teacher didn't care one bit that I didn't know that there wasn't going to be a test that day. So see, it's true in academia. What you don't know can hurt you. It's also true with your health. And many people have contracted cancer. They've contracted diseases because of a, a lifestyle habit that perhaps they didn't know would have that outcome. And they ended up dying anyway. Because what you don't know can hurt you. And there was something that uh, Chuck Swindoll had said that I'll, I'll never forget. He was responding to a question, can ignorance hurt you? Or rather, is, is ignorance bliss? And, it, and, and this is what he said. I, I love the way he responded to this. He said, on the contrary, ignorance is the breeding ground for fear, prejudice, and superstition, the feeding trough for unthinking animals, the training field for slaves. And he quotes some other people. Uh, it's blind and naked, according to Tennyson. It's the mother of impudence, according to Spurgeon. It brings despairing darkness, according to Shakespeare. It never settles a question, to, according to Disraeli, nor promotes innocence, according to Browning. And yet it remains the favorite plea of the guilty, the excuse of the lazy, even the Christian's rationalization for immaturity. All of these things can be the effects, the impacts of ignorance. Ignorance can also have eternal consequences. Two verses that appear in the Old Testament, one in Hosea 4, 6, where the prophet says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Similarly, in Isaiah 5, 13, it says, therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge the things that the Israelites had forgotten, the things that they were paying no attention to, were going to be the things that were going to drive them into exile and be subjects of the wrath of God. And I'll also say that an ignorance of the gospel of Jesus Christ can have eternal consequences and cause eternal separation from God. 
Ignorance is not humble. It does not lead people into a deeper knowledge of God. And it does not lead people into a deeper spiritual life. So the question that I want to talk about this morning is how do I overcome ignorance? How do I overcome ignorance? And we're going to be looking at a few passages this morning. The one I want to start with comes from Luke chapter 9. And uh, we'll be looking first at Luke 9, verses 23 to 26. And if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. You may be seated. We're currently in a sermon series called Vital Signs, and we're looking at those aspects uh, that are of vital importance to the church. They can determine its health, how it's doing. And we're going through five vital signs. We introduced these a couple of weeks ago. Worship, instruction, fellowship, evangelism, and service. Last week, we took a long look at worship and the necessity and the importance of worship. Why do we do it? What is it? This morning, we're going to look into this topic of instruction. One of the vital signs of the church is whether or not it is instructing its people and if instruction is happening. And before we go any further, I want to tie instruction um, to another term. Uh, and it's a, a term that we find all over the New Testament. And this term implies a pupil or a learner under the direction of a master. And the term I'm talking about is the term disciple. Disciple. To be a learner, to be a pupil of Jesus Christ, is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. A major component of that is instruction. So I want to move on this morning talking about instruction and its role in discipleship. And I want to talk about it in three ways. First, we'll talk about the elements of discipleship, then the example of discipleship, and then finally the ex execution of discipleship. How does it play out? So we'll talk about those three things this morning. And um, I want to talk first about these elements of discipleship. And we actually find five in this very first verse that we looked at, Luke chapter 9, verse 23. So there's these five elements, and they all start with the letter D. And the first is desire. Desire. And we see that very first phrase of Luke 9, 23, when Christ says, if any man will. If any man will. Now, at this point, there were a lot of folks following Christ. He was doing miracles. He just fed 5,000 people. And he's, he's raising people from the dead. And, and so folks are following. They're seeing the healings. They're seeing what's happening. It's interesting. But all of a sudden, he turns and he addresses these people that are following him. You see, none of them are there because they have to be there. He didn't force anybody to follow him. And he's speaking to desire here. 
desire was leading them. They desired more of him. They, they wanted more of his teachings. They wanted to walk in his ways. Oftentimes, God's way of leading us, God's way of, de- of bringing us to himself is through desire. You know, when, you th- when, I, when, I, when I think about my wife, what led me to her, why I wanted to marry her was ultimately because of desire. Uh, whenever I left my job and decided, you know what, I, I, I want to be a pastor, I want to go to seminary, that was ultimately a pathway of desire. God bringing me along. Whenever I was called to salvation, it was a call of desire. I desired to go to heaven and not to go to hell. I desired Christ when I was introduced to him. I desired his teaching. So desire is part of the pathway of discipleship. Good, God-given desires that he's put in us. And then we get to this next phrase, and we see decision. And we see it in that, that part, who will come after me? Who will come after me? See, before you can do anything, if, if, if you desire to do it, that's one thing. But before you can do it, you've got to decide that you're going to do it. It was one thing to desire to go to seminary. It was quite another thing to decide to actually quit jobs, pack up a moving truck, and move to Dallas, Texas. So there was a, a decision point. Jesus is going to give them a decision point. Now, he gave them other information to use to make that decision. He said there's going to be eternal glory or eternal consequences. But to follow me, it's not going to be easy. He doesn't make any bones about that. There's going to be a decision point. Jesus is saying there's a difference between just walking after me and listening to me and actually becoming my disciple. And you're going to have to decide if this is something that you want to do or you do not want to do. Then we come to this third part, denial. Denial. And we see it in this phrase, let him deny himself. This literally means setting something down. You're setting something down in order to follow Christ. What is it that Jesus would have them let go of to follow him? Everything. When we are called to salvation, God wants everything. He wants all of your past. He wants all of your present. He wants all of your future. He wants your relationships. He wants your vocation. He wants all of this. This is a total package deal. So you have to deny yourself. Now, in truth, you're not denying much of anything, considering what it is that you get. But yet, this is a process of denial. You're denying potentially your comfort. You're denying anything that's going to interrupt that relationship with with Christ. He wants it all. Then we come to this fourth part, dedication. And we see it in this phrase, take up his cross daily. Now, what does that mean? Because that would have had a really unique meaning to the listener. Because in Rome, if you were going to be executed on a cross, part of that execution was to take the crossbar, that was the the, uh, horizontal piece, and you would carry it to the place of execution. And once there, uh, they, they would 
they would nail you to it. But before that, as you're taking it through the city, this is a final statement that you're making to the world that Rome was right and I was wrong. That's why they had to carry the cross around the city. It was a final act of humiliation. And, and what Jesus is saying here, when he tells his followers to carry their crosses and follow him, he's referring to a public display that I am Christ's, and his ways are right, and my ways are wrong. That's the kind of, of dedication that we're talking about here, that we're going to dedicate ourselves to his teaching, his way of doing things. This is what all of the religious leaders had refused to do when it came to Christ. They were not going to dedicate themselves to him. This might mean living in such a way that could bring you humiliation in front of other people. Because they may not understand why you're doing what you're doing. Because Christians live and walk differently than the world does. And it may make you stand out. It may mean that you don't participate in something. Or it may mean that you do participate in something. But this is to take up our cross daily. It's a daily dedication. It's something that we have to do every day. And then finally, determination. Determination. We see it in this last phrase, and follow me. Determining to set out to follow Christ. And it's going to look different for everyone in, in some ways. And this is, this is one of the reasons I love to see people who are further down the path than me. Older people following Christ. See, that inspires determination in younger generations. When they see that you've been through the bad stuff of life, when they see that you have set your mind and your heart to following Jesus, that you haven't walked away from it, even when things happened in your life that you didn't understand. Half of my seminary education was in the classroom. The other half was just getting to be around these men and these women who had who had determined no matter what, had sacrificed themselves, they were going to live out their lives for Christ. That's determination. Because nowhere does Jesus say that this thing is going to be easy. As a matter of fact, you're going to have to determine to follow Christ, potentially even if it means your own death. That was the message of this crowd. There's no, there's no guarantee it's going to make life easier. I remember when we moved to Dallas, Texas... Uh, you know, we'd, we'd quit our jobs in Maryland, moved to Dallas to attend seminary, and we were living in the ghetto. We had to save as much money as we could. And I remember this place had roaches. I'll never forget one time I was standing at the kitchen at the counter, and I knew if my wife found out this place had roaches, she was going to freak. So I'm standing there, and I'm talking to her, and I'm flipping a roach into the disposal while she's talking. <laughs> I didn't want her to know. But you know what? We've talked, I've, eventually I let the cat out of the bag, hey, we had roaches at that place. And there were other problems that came up. And through all that difficulty and through all that hardship, we looked at each other one day and said, you know what? We'd do it all over again. We'd do it all over again. No regrets. If you find the Christian path difficult, stick with it. It ultimately does not disappoint. So these are the elements of discipleship that we have there in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Uh, these five things. And I want to move on. I want to talk about this example of discipleship. How do we see this scripturally being lived out? 
And I want to go back to a verse that we introduced last time, actually two weeks ago, in Acts 2.42. Because, you see, Peter preached this fantastic evangelistic message. All kinds of people were coming to faith. But then we get to this verse, and it says, speaking of this crowd of about 3,000 people, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. I want to focus on this first part. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, that word devotion, it, it comes from a Greek word, proskartero, and it means a, a heartfelt longing um, to be busying oneself with, to be busily engaged in. And the connotation there is that you're going to keep at it. I, I mentioned that this uh, verb is also used to describe at that time a woman who was in labor, who was, who was even though she was in pain, was willing to stick through it because she knew that the outcome was going to be worth it. That's this verb. So these young Christians were hungering to dive deeply into the, the instruction of these apostles. You know, Jesus left behind these, these 11, Judas left, they brought in Matthias, that was 12 disciples, to carry on the teaching. And those disciples taught these 3,000, so then there were more disciples. There were men like Polycarp and Clement, Oregon, these early church fathers that were disciples, some of them discipled directly by John and some of these, uh, some of these men that were there right at the beginning. And it's ongoing, it's a persistent teaching. So we had this new program started, so we have these 3,000 brand new disciples with an appetite to know more and more. See, this is what happens when people become Christians. They have a deep, deep, unquenchable thirst for truth. My wife came to Christ when she was 23 years old. And uh, up in, you know, she, she'd gone through those college years, and she really didn't have a whole lot of interest in studying. That just was not, not her thing. And so she became a, a, a believer at the age of 23. She went to an Easter service. She saw a, a passion play. And we were talking about this last night. She said, Chad, everything changed after that. She said, I was never a reader. She said, at, at that time, she had one of those pink, precious moments Bibles. And she said, that was what I had. And I just started reading that thing. And then she jumped into a church, and she got into a Bible study. And went, they went through the whole Bible in a year. And then she read it on her own. And I've met so many men who have said, you know what? I didn't want anything to do with reading or studying until I became a Christian. And I was like, I, I couldn't get enough. Because there's this desire to, to dive into the Scriptures, to, to know more. Because, you see, as we get more of that truth, as I more and more understand how deeply God loves me, I find that the rejection that I've suffered in my life gets less and less and less. As I gain a deeper understanding of the truth of eternity and salvation, I find that the fear of dying gets less and less and less. Because, you see, truth can drive out fear. As a matter of fact, I, I can even see where we could find comfort that in comparing our life to eternity, this is quite brief, quite brief. And every day that passes, we're one step closer to going home. I did Gladys Hall's memorial service yesterday. Whenever I met Gladys Hall, and I hope you had a chance to, 
to talk to her at some point. She was almost 100 years old. When I met her, the first thing out of her mouth was, I'm ready to go to heaven. <laughs> she was ready. She got it. She got the truth. That's where we're headed. That's where the believer is headed. So all of these things, the truth of heaven and eternity, you see, as the more, the more the truth gets real to you, the more you have this right perspective of life. And fears start subsiding. So this pursuit of truth, these young disciples that made up this very first church, they were devoting themselves to it. And it started something, see? It started something that has continued to this day. Um, if you go back and, and you just start, and I want to, for a moment, just kind of trace the, the intertwined history of Christianity and education. Because by the time we get to 96 AD, they had written something called the Didache. And the Didache was sort of this short book. Uh, now, the book of Revelation had been written about 90 AD. So this came along only six years after the book of Revelation had been written. So the scriptures had not really propagated their way around yet. And they needed some way to teach new believers. So they wrote this book called the Didache. And uh, it had basic instructions for how to be a Christian. And number one, section one, number one, it's a bunch of numbered statements. It said there are two ways, one of life and one of death. And there's a great difference between the two ways. <laughs> Pretty basic. This was the starting point. There's two paths you can go down. Then there were further instructions. Uh, one said receive the accident. Section three is kind of focused on instruction to children. Receive the accidents that befall to thee as good, knowing that nothing happens without God. So this was one of the first documents written to teach Christians. And then by the time you get to the year 150 A.D., a guy named Justin Martyr, this is where we get the term martyr, someone who dies for Christ, had established these schools of catechism. Has anybody out there ever had catechism before? Okay, a few of you. Um, if you've ever been to a website that has something called FAQs, Frequently Asked Questions, catechism is like the FAQs of Christianity. It's a whole bunch of questions. It's a whole bunch of answers. I had to memorize several of these. I went to a Christian school, and I had to memorize a lot of this by the time I was about seven years old. Uh, who made you? God made me. What else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make you in all things? God made me in all things for his own glory. Who made God? Nobody made God. Does God ever die? No, God lives forever. It's just basic questions and basic answers for the purpose of teaching people. So they established these schools, and he established a school in Ephesus and a school in Rome to teach Christians the basics of Christianity. As a matter of fact, I'm going to make a plug for something called the New City Catechism that was put out by Redeemer Presbyterian Church. 52 questions and answers for our hearts and minds. It's great for kids. And uh, you can get this on Amazon for $1.49. I think it'd be well worth it. New City Catechism. But anyway, this kind of learning was established by 150 A.D. And then by the time you get to the 4th century to the 9th century, uh, there were what they called Episcopal schools. And they were taught by bishops. They taught Christian doctrine. But then it goes beyond Christian doctrine. And they started teaching grammar and rhetoric and logic arithmetic, music, geometry, and astronomy. Because, you see, ultimately, all truth is God's truth. 
and pursuing education and learning was very much considered a Christian endeavor. So these schools and this education system was being brought about by Christians. And then we move forward to 1500. This is about the time of the Protestant Reformation. And we see these reformers, one of which was Martin Luther. He said he wanted children to be educated as God-fearing and law-abiding lay citizens who would serve God in society in all stations of life. Schools to him were to train and prepare more than just clergy. And then another reformer, John Calvin. He advocated universal education. His Geneva plan included a system of elementary education in the vernacular for all. And again, it included reading, writing, arithmetic, grammar, and religion. And the establishment of secondary schools for the purpose of training citizens for civil and ecclesiastical, that'd be church leadership. So you see there's this rich history of Christianity and education. And then we fast forward and we've got these Ivy League schools, right, that were established here in the United States. Uh, schools like Princeton and Harvard, Yale, all of which were founded by good Presbyterians. Brown University was established by the Baptists. They saw the need for further education. The, the, the pursuit of knowledge and instruction for the majority of history was propagated by Christians. As a matter of fact, if you look at the founding mission statement of Harvard University, it says this. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. Now it's not that way anymore. Because something happened, something called the Age of Enlightenment. And it was during this Age of Enlightenment that a man became so enthralled with himself, so enthralled with science, when he saw what all he could learn and what all he could do, he, de he decided, you know what, maybe God's not as smart as we thought he was. And maybe that Bible that's full of talking snakes and talking donkeys is no longer a, a reliable source of truth. So that European philosophy, it's called liberalism, eventually made its way to the United States. So unfortunately, there was a divorce between higher education and Christianity. However, instruction is still thriving today. It may not be that those schools have kept to their moorings, but Christianity and instruction is still alive and well. But that postmodern philosophy, now that we're living with, has attempted to make truth relative. So you'll hear things like, well, it's true for me. Well, think about that for a second. If it's true, it's, it, it's got to be true for everybody. But this idea of relative truth all stems from that philosophy, that, that Age of Enlightenment philosophy that, that made its way from Europe to the United States and, and caused this division. Because, see, what we're after is a Christian worldview. And all of these things, the instruction, the reason we teach and preach is so people here can be instructed to have a Christian worldview because everything we believe as Christians affects every part of our life. For example, it affects how we view technology. It affects how, how much we use technology. How we use technology is this 
Is this a tool to fulfill our role as God's stewards? Or is it some kind of object of worship that is attempting to control us? It affects how we view sexuality and marriage. Sex is confined to a covenantal marriage between a man and a woman. God established that. That's what it is. It impacts the arts and recreation. We are made to be creative. We are made to be in community. There is, God is a creative God. It affects our, our science, how we view science. We need to be viewing science through this lens of faith that informs us on what we consider to be ultimately true or false. I don't care what they found in a laboratory. That isn't the ultimate source of truth for me. And it affects our vocation. How do we do our jobs? Do we see this as a gift from God that's to be pursued with excellence for His glory? All honest professions are honorable. So all of these things are the examples of discipleship how and, and why we do it. So I want to move on now and talk about the, the execution of discipleship. Um, just very practically, how do we go about this, this path of instruction that we all need to be on? Um, how can we be earnest disciples and, and seekers of truth? Where do we look? Because never in the history of the world has there been as much Christian literature and media as there is right now. And some of it's really good and some of it ain't. So we have to be able to discern between these things, what resources are out there. And I want to mention a few of them right now. Uh, and there's, there's some great stuff online. I want to mention three great online resources. One is called Right Now Media. How many of you are on Right Now Media? Okay, several of you. Our church has paid for everybody to have a subscription to Right Now Media. And you can get on this by emailing us at, at, at this particular um, email address, office at fbcsheridanwy.org. And there's great, great Bible studies on there. There's some great, great teachers on there. Uh, it's worth checking out and going through. I've taught from, from three of these before. You can use them in a group setting or you can use it individually. But that's a fantastic resource. That's the first one. Secondly, if you want to go really, really deep and you would have put a lot of time into some, some serious, like, seminary-level study, Dallas Theological Seminary offers free online classes. And this is the same class you take as a seminary student. And they're offering all kinds of things. Uh, right now, I was, I was checking it out. Um, there's classes available on the book of Acts, the book of Hebrews, the book of Jonah and Ruth. There's a, a class called The Life of Christ, taught by Dwight Pentecost. There's a class on Martin Luther. And there's a class called How to Read the Bible Like a Seminary Professor. And that's a fantastic one. If you can devote like five weeks or something to one of these, um, they're, they're good classes. And uh, one last thing, there's a group called Credo House Ministries. And their mission is to make theology accessible to anybody. You know, sometimes, and I hate this, the word theology is kind of kicked around like a bad word. But if you go back and you look at what the Puritans thought about theology, they called it wisdom, wisdom as to living life. How do you do life? Well, you do with, it starts with right belief. Uh, this was actually created by a guy named Michael Patton, who was on staff with Chuck Swindoll. He created this th theology uh, program because he wanted to teach it to the people in the church. 
And Swindoll liked it so much, he said, I want you to go out and teach this to everybody. So he kind of launched out and is doing his own thing now. So those are three great online resources. And then secondly, be a lifelong learner by reading. I'll never forget someone say, saying to me, read like your life depends on it. Read like your life depends on it. Um, do you know the main purpose of stained glass windows? Stained glass windows were originally put into churches because the people were illiterate and this gave them a picture of the gospel. That was the purpose of stained glass windows. See, we have a gift today that they did and that's literacy. We can pick up books and we can read them. Now, there's tons of good ones out there. And rather than me go through a laundry list, if you have an interest in a particular area, uh, contact me. Um, you can get a hold of me at that same office uh, email address. Or you can call the church, and I will get you in touch with the right book that you're looking for. One thing I like to do, see, there's some folks I really admire out there, some pastors I love to, to read. Tim Keller's one of them. So what I wanted to find out was, what is Tim Keller reading? And he's got a whole list of books that he considers to be some of the most important on his website that you can find. Um, one book I think every Christian needs to read is The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. It's an excellent, excellent book about, uh, it's very creative. It's about one, one senior demon instructing a junior demon on how to go about tempting someone. You'll be surprised how much you find of yourself uh, in that book. So, those three things. And then finally, um, get into a class. Get into a class. We offer some great classes here at our church. And you can find those in your bulletin. We have them going on uh, on Sunday mornings and then all kinds of evenings and mornings through the week. And you can see a full list of those in the bulletin. And then lastly, I want to offer you a guideline. This is not so much a resource, but a guideline to go about seeking resources. And that is by avoiding recentism. Avoiding recentism. Now, what is recentism? Well, it's a disease. And it's one that most of us have been infected with. And it's the idea that the best stuff is the newest stuff. The best stuff you can get your hands on is the latest and greatest. There's something C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. It's the idea that uh, if it's newer, it must be better. That's bad thinking. J.I. Packer wrote something about this. He said, this is, this is recentism described. The newer is the truer. Only what is recent is decent. Every shift of ground is a step forward. And every latest word must be hailed as the last word on its subject. Avoid that as you go about seeking something to help you study. Now, all this hopefully is to get you to even know your Bible better. That needs to be our first and foremost source of truth. And that's where we need to get most of our instruction. So putting all this together, avoid ignorance by being a lifelong learner. Be a lifelong learner. I want to close by this, with this uh, quote. This is from St. Bernard of Clairvaux. And he says, Some seek knowledge for the sake of knowledge. That's called curiosity. Others seek knowledge so that they themselves may be known. That's vanity. And finally, but there are still others who seek knowledge in order to serve and edify others, and that is charity. 
You know, you can best love somebody by discipling them and teaching them the things you've learned and the things that you know. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for the gifts that you've given us, the gift of learning. God, to learn more about you. And we're thankful for the rich, rich history of Christianity and the schools that have been produced and built in your name. And God, I pray that all of us would would be lifelong learners, that we would never get to a point where we become lazy or satisfied with what we know because you are an infinite God. And there's always more truth to be learned from you. And I pray, God, that we would take discipleship seriously and that we would become disciple makers. We ask it all in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Peace to you. Have a great day. Thank you for being here.